Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy talking to interesting media people. My guest today is Glenn Daniel from Smooth FM in Sydney. Glenn has been working as a radio journalist, newsreader and news director for over 30 years in Sydney and is one of the most recognisable and respected voices when it comes to radio news. Having worked at 2WS when it was an AM station, then WSFM when it moved to the FM band, 2SM, Triple M and Today FM and also a brief stint at the ABC and News Radio. We chat about his long and distinguished radio career. We also chat about the diminishing role of radio newsrooms, what he enjoys most about teaching, the great events he's covered in his career, and also some advice for some of the younger generation. Glenn is without doubt one of the nicest, most compassionate and well-respected men you'll ever meet. So I really hope you enjoy our chat. Glenn Daniel, thanks for joining me on the Media Mates podcast. Thank you, Ralph. Good to be here. Uh, we're in at Smooth today, and it very much looks uh, smooth by nature as well. How have you found it the last sort of uh, two years, I guess? It's been, uh, in fact, a third anniversary just the other day, so that's just flown. But uh, it's been a great change. It's been a real pleasure to work in a music radio station that uh, takes news seriously, and uh, that's been the attitude from the start. And uh, our program directors have very much encouraged news content for an adult audience. And how have you found that's been received by not only, I guess, management, but also the, the audience? I think what our listeners are saying is, look, we love the music, we love the competitions, we love everything you're doing on air, but don't make us go somewhere else for our news fill, particularly driving to work in the morning, driving home in the afternoon. So... From the outset, the the policy has been to make sure news is an important ingredient in the program, and just like everything else is, and it's been given that priority. And for us to be doing, you know, four minute news bulletins on the half hour in breakfast, and the same in drive time, and uh, I, I think what it's said to our listeners is, we hear you, we know what you want, and we'll deliver that. As a hardened newsman who has always looked at that kind of thing and must be really satisfying knowing that in the days of cuts in newsrooms and bulletins being shortened to actually be able to constantly and consistently deliver uh, that kind of product, it must be really uh, rewarding at, at this stage of your career. Very much so. I mean, I honestly thought that maybe the opportunities to do this sort of thing in commercial radio, besides the AM talk stations, wouldn't have been there. And uh, there is an opportunity here. And it's been like a lease of life for me to come back to commercial radio, having spent some time at the ABC, and to come back into an environment like this. Commercial radio is what I love. It's where I've worked for 32 or 33 years. And uh, to be able to come back and do what I do and do news, but do it in an environment that's fun, um, that's successful, the station's rating and, and uh, doing well, having only been on the air just over three years. And to do that, it was a surprise to me. And I just like the fact that news is a priority as well as the music and everything else we do on Smooth. Let's go way back, 33 years you mentioned in the in the industry. Uh, where did it all start? Or actually more so where or where and when did 
uh, radio news give you the bug that that was the career that you wanted to uh, chase or pursue? I guess it, look, it started, to be really honest, at home as a hobby. Um, I've got two older brothers. We were all fascinated by radio. Um, my two older brothers ended up being announcers in radio uh, and programmers, and uh, I went into news. But as kids, as teenagers, uh, one of my brothers was technically pretty savvy. All of our bedrooms were wired up. We had sort of mock radio stations, and that was where it started. And, you know, we used to be fascinated by radio at that time. So we all ended up working in it, and uh, I took more of a news path than a announcing path. I went and studied at uh, the University of Technology at Broadway, did a degree, came out the other end, and I'd actually accepted a job at 2WG at Wagga. There was a cadet wow. down there, and I was in the process of pretty much packing to go and having been and done interviews at all the Sydney stations, I got a reply from 2WS and the AM station, as it was in those days, at 12.24, with a, the offer of a cadetship. And, you know, 33 years ago, there were such things as cadetships, and that's where I started in, in 1982. And who were the people there then that were... Because, obviously, things were a whole lot different then. Each radio station had a, a rather large newsroom, um, and there was obviously competition between the radio stations to go out and get stories, and police reporters were had ears to the scanners and all of these kind of things and would often beat the, the um, police to stories. Um, who were some of those people that you looked up to in those formative years? Certainly there were, there were quite a few that had an influence on my decision to be in radio and stay in radio. The news director at the time was a fellow called Greg Milne who pretty much set up the 2WS newsroom. We had 21 journalists in an AM music station in those days working from uh, pretty much from 3.30, 4am through to midnight and he was a big influence along with Steve Raymond who was our current affairs director at the time and Steve had had a magical career in television and radio and and came to be current affairs director. Ian Kelly was probably lesser known but was the person that influenced me greatest in terms of my writing. I've never worked with a better person that could sum up a complex story in three paragraphs. He taught me how to write and that was great. Steve Blander joined uh, just months after I started to read Breakfast on 2WS and I had uh, the terrific opportunity to edit his news a little bit further down the track once I'd been there a bit longer. But we worked together for about six years out there. And Greg Henricks was probably one of the other big influence on me, the late Greg Henricks, who was our police reporter. He was the sort of person that was on the scene at Anita Cobby's murder, uh, coups in Fiji, uh, and particularly the Lindy Chamberlain trials in the Northern Territory. And I think back to his coverage of that. There again was somebody who showed me how to take big, complex, legal or other issues and put them into a 40-second voice report so that every one of your listeners said, I know exactly what's going on. Do you think that's a dying art now? Obviously, where we've got one-minute news bulletins on a whole lot of commercial radio stations. A lot of them don't have police reporters, on-the-road reporters, because you can cover everything off Sky News. But being able to create that that really strong and concise word picture that you can own the only the only way you can get that is listening to the radio it's it's gone it is a bit and i think um look the digital world has given us a new reality hasn't it that that people wake up in the morning they used to when i started in radio turn on the radio for the 6am news and find out 
what had been going on while they'd been asleep that night. Now we wake up, the first thing you do is you open your phone, you know, and see what's going on. So I think in many ways the breaking news element of news has been limited a bit, but it's still there. There's no doubt once people jump in the car and in a city like Sydney where people can spend an hour and a half in the car getting to work every morning and the same getting home, they're not looking at their phones, they're clearly obviously not watching television and so on. That's when radio comes to the fore, and I think radio has remained strong in Australia because it's mobile. It goes anywhere, and particularly when I need to have my hands and my eyes concentrating on something else in a car, that's where radio is coming to its own. So I think we still have a place there, but it's definitely different to what it used to be. Now, what happened after uh, WS? I was there for six years, and at the age of 26, I got the opportunity to move to 2SM as news director. Now, at the end of the 80s, this is 1988, uh, 2SM was in its dying days effectively because FM radio had taken over. And yeah. today FM and Triple M had come into the market about the time I started in radio and they were dominant by the end of that decade. They'd really made their mark. And 2SM, which was the great rock station of the 70s, was pretty much on the way out. But it was an opportunity to take the right job in the wrong places. I've always described it. It was uh, in, a, in, a news, in a radio station that was battling, but it gave me an opportunity to put my trainer wheels on and be a news director and run a news team, relatively small in those days. We had nine journos, which is big now, but, <laughs> but compared to the other newsrooms at the time, it was small, but it gave me an opportunity to not only continue the craft of news, but learn the skills of managing people in news as well. How did you find that? What was the biggest thing that you learnt in terms of management at 2SM? Yeah, I think it was the biggest thing I learnt in management and I continued on with that was to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And newsrooms, most that I you know, have worked in, there's a lot of reactive people who are all about my agenda and it's the nature of our industry that we are all ego-driven. If you deny that, well, <laughs> you're probably lying. So we're all ego-driven, but it, I realised I needed to put myself in the other person's shoes, understand where they're coming from, where they're operating. And sure, I had things that I needed to achieve, but I needed to take on board where they were at as well. And that was the biggest lesson I learned out of management there. And I was only in that role for 18 months. And like everybody, probably in commercial radio somewhere along the line, I lost my job. We, I was retrenched. 2SM was financially doing it tough. And every department manager was shown the door on one day and we were all out in the footpath with a cardboard box. So uh, news director for 18 months and suddenly I was out of work. It's amazing though the way that things happen in the past but they still happen the same way these days. It's like it's one of the, these these industries and you know it for well going in. There isn't a whole lot of security, is there, really? Where you change your management means a change of mind, which means you might, might not be the flavour of the month and then you're out looking for another gig. Yes, you're often at the whim of program directors or changes of management or changes of format on the radio station and you don't fit in anymore. They're looking for a different voice or a different sound. So it does happen. I must admit I, I've always had the view that the uncertainty wasn't a bad thing. It was actually a good thing. It kept me on edge, made me keep driving to do the best thing. And I always felt as well, if circumstances changed and I wasn't wanted, I felt I could get a gig somewhere else. And uh, as I say, here I was, I, I'd uh, been married about five or six years. I'd just had a baby. My first son was born a week before and I'm out of work, you know, standing on the footpath. 
outside wondering what I'm going to do. But uh, my first general manager at 2WS had uh, then moved to Today FM and I received a call from Bob Scott, who's the greatest GM I've ever worked for, who keeps his ear to the ground. Probably within an hour of me losing my job, I, I got a phone call and he said, mate, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He said, I heard you lost your job. I said, how do you know? It wouldn't be on the mobile though, though, in those days because you mobile. wouldn't be able to track you down like no. you had to ring you at home I on was the home phone. I, I was uh, <laughs> actually in the office, cleaning up the office, having been told I was no longer needed. Right. And the phone rang. And uh, the great thing was, look, he said to me, um, this was on a Friday, he said, come and see me on Monday. And uh, I was literally out of work for two days and I started work at Today FM the following week and uh, it ended up spending um, – you know, a good seven, eight years at Osterio, and that included the merger with Today FM and Triple M getting together in 1995 and us building a brand-new newsroom and bringing those two operations together. So it opened what a door closed, but a really exciting one opened. And that's what it is in the radio industry. We like to think of it's a, a big industry with so many radio stations, but now it's got so much smaller with companies taking over and ha- housing uh, two radio stations in the one lot, or in the case, some cases three. Um, it's all about your contacts and your reputation, isn't it? Really, if somebody thinks you're good, well, you're going to get a gig, aren't you? Pretty much so. I mean, there, yeah, there are still opportunities out there. I, I agree with you. It's actually tougher than it's ever been, and it's probably hard for us to bring new blood into the industry. Um, there were always opportunities through cadetships or with large newsrooms, you could always absorb two or three reasonably inexperienced people and they would, you know, cut their teeth and learn the ropes and do that sort of thing. Now, we're almost in capital city radio at least, expecting people that the day they walk in, they're going to be ready to go. So it's made it difficult for the bottom end of the market and it's certainly reduced on what it used to be. But yeah, radio has changed. And also the top end of the market because budgets aren't what they used to be for these things. Very true. And, and you know, obviously a lot of people have actually left the industry and gone and explored corporate work or public relations work or whatever that, you know, some I've spoken to would, would admit to you it's not been as satisfying for them, the job, but income-wise as they've got older, had a family, you know, got a mortgage, all of those things, they've some of them have had to move out of radio into these other higher-paid jobs to do what they needed to do. So people make economic choices. Um, some people decide to stay, even though the salary is less than elsewhere, because they simply love the job. Is that a devaluing of what radio journalists or people that work in newsrooms do in terms of the PR people getting smarter, knowing that, okay, we slug them an extra you know, 20, 30 grand, we'll get them over the line, and then... Radio bosses look at it and just go, well, there's somebody else here we can get to do for the same price. Ta-ta. <laughs> yeah, there's probably an element of that. There's also, I, I think, the reason they're so – that journalists, and particularly radio journalists, are so attractive in that field is they are considered to be very good at what they do. And for PR companies, for corporates, somebody that can uh, sum up a complex issue facing a company in a one-page press release – uh, those people can do that. And I, I guess that they're overvalued in a way or, or very much valued because of what the skill set that they've got. So it's been easy in many ways for people to fall into that role. Likewise, as press secretaries for politicians, because radio journalists have had to have come from a life where they're reacting quickly, sometimes every quarter hour, 
things are prepared. So they're working on very short deadlines, and that suits cabinet ministers and others who are constantly in a changing agenda. They love working with with journos and particularly radio journos. So great opportunities have opened out of it. I think, um, you know, the best in the field are still probably valued in commercial radio, but it's it's the place of news in commercial radio that's changed and there are less places where it's as important as it used to be. You talk about that modern-day news. Do you think that there's too much emphasis on your Kardashians and your Justin Biebers and the interest level in that? Obviously, that's heightened through the internet, and there is generally a whole lot of interest out there amongst the community. But for somebody like me, I'm baffled by constant stories of, you know, celebrities making news because they cut their, cut their toenail off in the morning. I think we've got the balance wrong. I mean, I, I'm, you know, a huge supporter in the mix, the melting pot of, you know, the agenda items that can be displayed in a radio news bulletin. Uh, that, that has a place, but I think what we've given it is far too big a place. And in commercial FM radio, We've generally uh, said we won't try and expand the mind of our audience. We'll just uh, give them this info, the show busy come lifestyle info, but we won't touch on anything too serious. And I think what that does is it underestimates your audience. There is a capacity to there to take in complex issues, whether they be the sort of issues that appear in parliament or in business. Uh, in sport or, you know, all of those things are possible, but I think we've got the balance wrong for the greater majority of, of younger focused FM music stations where we just want to talk showbiz and lifestyle and lead with stuff that even, even people that are interested in it go, you know, I don't think that actually deserves to be up front in the news. In the, in the news. news. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned 1995 where you had the merger there between Today FM and Triple M and you oversaw that as, as news director. That's when our paths first crossed. You were at that stage before all that sort of took off. You were teaching at Maclay College. Now, for me, someone that has worked with you and known you since then, um, teaching seemed to be the perfect fit for you because you're calm, you're able to explain things in an easy manner and able to get the best out of people. I guess a lot of that comes from having been a news director at such an, uh, a young age. I was pretty yeah, conscious of that when I went to Maclay and then taught at the film, television and radio school. And I was conscious of the fact uh, exactly as I managed people in the newsroom, I needed to do that with people that were wanting to break into the industry. Uh, their experience was either minimal or zero. And it was giving them an opportunity to say, this is how we do it. And you know what? You could actually do this. It's not that special. And, and I think to break down some of the mystique about radio news was the first thing you wanted to do. And then it was all about, I was quite honest with them, teach the basics. And I was found if you could, if you could write well, if you had a good ear for audio and you could read it, they, they were the qualities you needed. And if there were weaknesses in any of those, let's work on them, let's improve them. But if you want to get a job in this business, You've got to be able to write the news, you've got to be able to edit it, and you've got to be able to read it. And those three elements, they've all got their different strengths and weaknesses in there. But I, I really enjoyed teaching, actually. It was great to be able to take what you do every day, and the older you get, you do it second nature sort of thing. And it's good to be put on the spot, particularly by young, inquiring minds who want to get into this, saying, well, why did you decide to leave with that story? Or 
why do you do that at that time of the day? And it was good for me to actually think through the process and explain it back. It actually, teaching actually helped me be a news director, yeah. One of the great things that I'll remember in one of those early classes was just getting rid of the word that. And I talk to people or talk to younger journalists today about just getting rid of it. It's it's such an unnecessary word, but we use it so often in, in, or in regular conversation. But when you look at radio copy, you don't need to use it at all. It's a crutch, isn't it? And, and <laughs> you know, I mentioned Ian Kelly earlier, and that's what he taught me about writing. And, and even visually, in those days, we were on typewriters. There were no computers. Mm. So we'd type a story and you'd look – I always look at his story. And generally for radio, you generally want – one and a half to two lines per paragraph. So there's short, sharp paragraphs to read. And I would, you know, as I was sitting there, look over at Ian's copy and it was all clean and short. And I looked at mine and the paragraphs were four lines. And I'm then thinking like, he's right. I've got to then actually read through all those words, let alone your listener at the other end of the, of the radio who's going, well, I actually don't even have the copy to follow you. I've lost you mid paragraph. So yeah, he, he, taught me that simplicity, get to the point. Um, and, he, and he always said as well to me, when you've written a story, if you go back, he said, I guarantee you can say the same thing with less words. And it was sort of do write the story, do an edit, and then do another edit before you go to air. And he was absolutely right. Our economy of words is just the greatest thing you can teach someone when it comes to radio, because I still look at some of the scripts today that you get left with to read of an afternoon or whatever, and you just think, how am I going to get through all of that? Like, there's a lot of information there, and it's probably all valid, but you can say it in a whole lot, um, you know, less words. And you mentioned 90-second bulletins, Ralph, which a lot of the, you know, FM formats are. Then the test on your writing is even greater. It's it's sometimes easier to be lazy and, and fill up a 10-minute news bulletin. But if you've got 90 seconds to get through a range of issues, um, you're writing and that becomes the priority. And we used to have a couple of sayings like, you know, less is better and uh, brevity equals impact were the, were the two sort of sayings that were going around at the time. And it's those things, being able to choose the words, convey the information so that your audience ticks a box box in their head and says, yep, I get it, I understand what you're saying, what's next, rather than a verbose set of stories where your audience is saying, you've, you've lost me completely. And in this fast-moving world, and if you're in the car, we all know what you do, you press the button and go somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, how did you find that transition of bringing the two newsrooms together, particularly FM newsrooms? You'd come from um, an AM background. Um what was it like transitioning into the FM world? Look, it was an interesting time when the federal government changed the law that owners could own two stations in the one market instead of one. Um, there was a lot of merging going on, and generally the partners that were merging uh, were fierce commercial rivals. And to see Today FM and Triple M, and at the time Doug Mulray was the king of FM on breakfast on Triple M, and Jamie Dunn and Wendy Harmer, were sort of the kings and queens on the Today FM side of the business. They weren't getting anywhere near the ratings Doug Mulray was, but they were in the marketplace and there were shots going back and forward across the harbour between the two of them, Triple M based at Bondi Junction and Today FM over at Crow's Nest. Suddenly, those rivals had to come together and programming and sales and all of those departments in a building crunched together. 
And I, look, I can honestly say there were some awkward lift rides when uh, in those days, Today FM was on, I think, level 24, Triple M was on level 25 and Corporate right. was on 26. <laughs> so from the basement car park, it was a long way to the top, particularly when you say had the two rival program directors who hated each other and, you know... All going, both going for the, the same market share and exactly. all of that kind of thing. And now having to sit in meetings where boys were all under the same umbrella, it's all love and family and here we are. How long did it take? My recollection is it took eight months. And I think in that period, people either bought in, this is the, this is the reality now, two stations work together, people either bought in or they said, you know what, I can't do this, or they were moved on. But eight months down the track, like by the start of 1996, uh, ha- this having happened in the middle of 95, pretty much everyone had accepted the structure. And very quickly then, people keep coming into the industry, the only thing they ever knew was two stations owned by the one owner. So... Change happened rapidly, but the first six to eight months was uh, was pretty wild. I'd imagine it's pretty much you look at it now with a wry smile with what's happening sort of a few floors below with 2GB and 2UE. Yeah, and I guess that was one of the mergers we never thought would happen. And the journo in me uh, is hugely disappointed it was allowed to happen, actually, that you had you know one leading talk station uh, getting into partnership with the other talk station commercially and what it meant was an entire newsroom disappeared. And uh, I've never worked for 2UE, but uh, being one of their competitive rivals, I always have had strong admiration for their news service. That microphone was everywhere and it was iconic and is iconic in Australian radio. Um, the saying on 2UE, you know, around the corner or around the world, they brought you the news and they did. I think it's hugely disappointing, particularly for radio listeners, that that was allowed to happen and and the 2UE newsroom disappeared and Macquarie National News out of 2GB, again, great newsroom, but ends up appearing on both of those radio stations. Now, to me, that's something that ACMA and other authorities should have said that's not allowed to happen. It makes sense for shareholders and for company bosses. It doesn't make sense for listeners. You're exactly right. Why is that allowed to happen? Like, why hasn't ACMA got the strength to say, well, you know, these are independent news services. These are two separate radio stations. It's just a shame that the competition is now gone. So that that, that even just purely from a journalist's point of view, you're you're you know you're the only one at the story. Your your mate down the road's not going to get there. So you can you can um, you can tell people in two different radio stations the same story. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I know obviously in the marketplace there's there's an ABC outlet, there's a Macquarie outlet, uh, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, but it, it is disappointing that another outlet, another viewpoint on news, and obviously just from a purely uh, employment point of view, a whole newsroom closing meant all of those journalists out of work and less choice in the marketplace of where you get your news content. And while there's more choice, I suppose, in a digital world of what you can pick up on your phone and so on, purely in radio terms, uh, a really disappointing day in the history of Australian radio that that was allowed to happen. I don't listen as often as I used to to either of those stations, but how does it work in terms of a reporter being out in the field? Who do they go to first? Do they go to... uh, 
Jones or do they go to Gary Linnell and, and, and John Stanley or do they go to Ray Hadley or do they go who gets the gets the carb up on a, on a really big yeah. breaking news story? I'm not close enough to know either, to be really honest, um, having not worked at either and not working at either right now. So how that works and which producers get calls and which one gets priority and so on, I'm not sure how it works out. I know there were certain people from the 2UE newsroom that were able to relocate to GB as part of the, the new operation. But, uh, yeah, I, I will always feel that it's a pity we just don't still have two newsrooms rather than one. And then what happened to you after Austereo? So that was quite a few years there, and then you, you decided to step out for a while. Is that I right? did. I, I was there till 1997. Uh, I actually had 1997 out of radio, and uh, I went in as a full-time media trainer in corporate and was in partnership with a with another fellow in that. And I just needed some time away. I suppose having been news director for seven years there at Osterio and, and the previous uh, 18 months at 2SM, I wanted a break. Um, it was a good break for me to get out of it. And then what it actually did was, was made me realise how much I missed it. And while I enjoyed the new field of, of training people on the other side of the fence to deal with us as radio and TV and newspaper journalists, which was hugely fulfilling... Uh, I wanted to get back into radio, um, but I didn't actively pursue it. It actually, the cards fell my way in a sense that Steve Blander, who'd been the breakfast newsreader at 2WS uh, for about 15 years, moved to 2UE and the opening came for a breakfast newsreader at 2WS. So I went back there in 1998 and I stayed there until... 2011. So I had uh, the best part of 14 years reading Breakfast on on uh, WSFM, and that was a hugely important part for my career. Because in the same uh, step, I also took on the national news director's role. Yep. So I didn't. I, I'd now stepped into looking after newsrooms in Brisbane and Melbourne and Canberra and Adelaide, as well as what I'd been used to in Sydney, and uh, that was a good thing. It obviously stretched me because. A lot of that communication with interstate newsrooms you do via the phone or email and not face-to-face. Yeah. But it made me travel because it made me realise the value of face-to-face with people, particularly on important issues. Don't tell them that stuff on an email or a phone call. Actually get on the plane and go and see them. And what was that like having to, you said before, deal with different personalities that can be quite reactionary in a newsroom, you're dealing with probably 10 staff within a, a Sydney newsroom and then having to sort of do that around the, the country at, at varying degrees. Um, must take a great skill to be able to just adapt to different situations because all the news markets are different, right? They've all got their own ways of doing things and they've been taught differently and then to put your own imprimatur on how it's going to be shaped as a national um at a national level. That's a good point, actually. I think I did have to be sensitive to the the Melbourne market is different to Sydney, always has been. There are similarities in Brisbane, but it's different too. Adelaide is different again. Uh, so I had to learn those markets first up. And over the years, I'd, I'd, I'd taken an interest in what was going on in there, but I had to step that up and actually get a real feel for what's important in those cities. That helped me. And I think the other thing with with personnel, as I mentioned before, being willing to step into their shoes. The other thing I found most useful in radio newsrooms and probably in other areas of management it would be as well is don't stifle people but set them a parameter where they can bounce around in that box and do what they do best, be themselves, 
not feel like they're constrained from what they normally do, but provide a, a, an outer perimeter to that that says to them, look, it's a framework, this, right? this is the line <clears throat> and this is what we do and these are the things we don't do and they're out there. But within that four square box, this is what we can do. You've got the flexibility. I want you, I want you to write the way you do. I want you to read the way you do. I want you to be you doing your job, but do it within these parameters. And I think people don't mind that. They don't mind parameters if you're also respecting them and saying, we actually, the reason you're here working for us is because we value what you do and we want you to be you doing it. And, uh, that was my focus, I think, as a manager, was to set some rules but actually let them be themselves. How hard is it to – you mentioned before how you had to cope with your own redundancy. How difficult is it having those tough conversations with people when you've been given the news from upstairs about budgets being cut? I think it's probably one of the most awful things you have to do as a manager is to let people go, particularly staff that you don't want to let go. They're very good at their job. The only reason they're being shown the door is uh, there's been a, a, an assessment of an Excel spreadsheet somewhere and a salary to be saved sometimes, and that's the hardest thing. I, I always approached it, uh, to be honest, with those people exactly where we were at, not to gild the lily in any way, not to tell a staff member one thing but know that it was something else, yet also not misrepresent the company in any way, it was, it was a difficult job, I've got to be honest. There was no easy way of saying to somebody, you're out of a job and you've got to go. Uh, you had to do it. It was part of your role and I did it, but there's no doubt when it was over, you would always look back and go, you know, that's, that's not a great thing to have to do. We knew each other for 10 years before we actually worked together and I've got to say you are one of the most meticulous and well-organised people I think that well, uh, that I have actually ever met uh, when it comes to just putting together a news bulletin. Um, Can you take us through your day, uh, particularly from the times at WS where you had to start at 5am and how you went about that whole process of coming in and doing what you had to do for a day? I mean, I would be on the air at 5 and I would go to work at 2am and people would look at you like, what planet are you from? (laughs) Because they, th- there's an impression that, well, you're on the air at five, you can just wander in at four or quarter past four, get some things together and away you go. But the reality is, you know, it's not packaged and ready to go. There's a whole lot of raw material around and your job was to put it together. Your job was to assess what's good for your audience and what's not. And that filtering process takes time. So there, there's never a shortage of available raw material. Uh, the real art was getting it from the raw material into the bulletins for the particular radio station you work for, and and it takes time. So for me, with no overnight shift, walking into zero, uh, I've always had, I'd need three hours of lead time to get full bulletins together. This is four and five-minute bulletins, not 60-second updates. So, yeah, that, that was critical to me, was have the lead time so that when you're actually presenting the bulletins, you're not under pressure. The bulk of the work's been done. The outline of most of the bulletins is ready to go. You add and change. You get reaction to stories and so on during the time you're on air. But while you're on air, you're not thinking I'm way behind. I've got to get all these things together. So, And it gives you enough time to know the issues, right? So you've been through both of the papers and you're still a paper man. You go through it rather than go online because 
I think the way that you approach it is that you think you might miss something online, whereas if you see it in the paper, well, it's actually physically there. And also, you that's right, if the Premier calls, you want to know the issue of the day inside out. You want to, you want to obviously, they'll have an opportunity to, to give their spiel on whatever the issue is, but you want to be in a position to be able to question them about it. And if you don't know what the issue is, then we fall into that trap of politicians particularly ringing, giving their three grabs, and go, whereas it's our role to not only give them that opportunity, as they as they do, ringing as a, a member of parliament, but to question them as well and say, well, wait a minute. And if you, if you haven't done the research, well, you're not in a position to do that. So there's that obligation. And I think also just having an awareness of what's around, making sure that what people are driving to work with that morning is not what they heard going home the night before, and also to be, to be aggressive, to make choices and make them quickly because you're under such pressure, and in breakfast, every 15 minutes you're on the air, it leaves you a window of about seven or eight minutes to write material between bulletins and other updates and so on. So you do need to be organised. You also spent a bit of time with New South Wales cricket. I don't know how you did it because you were still doing WS at that stage and getting up at two o'clock in the morning. That must have been a different yet fun experience as well. It was. It was an opportunity at the time where I was just uh, contracting to WS just to read the breakfast news, so I would be able to leave at 9am. But it was an interesting balance between working in the media and working for an organisation for the media. So I never felt compromised in any way that it was difficult in walking the two paths, but it was enjoyable. It was a period of New South Wales cricket where there were so many test players there, the War Brothers, Michael Slater, Michael Bevan, Glenn McGrath, the list went on and on. It was a real opportunity to see the inner workings of a cricket team under the leadership of Steve Ricks and the coach, to sit in the SCG dressing rooms with these guys, but always knowing your place. I was there as the media manager, get and do your job and get out. You're not actually a player, so don't pretend you are. And I was very conscious of that from the outset. But building a trust with those players so they would trust you to make those connections with the media and not put them in a position where they are vulnerable, give them the feedback they needed so they were ready to go. When I was preparing for this and I told a couple of people that I was going to interview you, somebody that, uh, you know, hasn't worked with you but knows of you because obviously you've been on the, the radio for the last 30 years, he said, oh, that's great. You can talk to him about the stories that he's covered over that period of time. And I thought, that's a really good question because there must have been so many. Is there one or two days that stick in your mind and you think, that was massive. I got through it. I was the first person to know about that news and I delivered it to the wider Sydney audience. Look, I, I, I guess there's been no bigger story for us than September 11. Um, and as I always say to people, the, the day September 11 happened, well, it was 10 to 11 in the evening, I was asleep and got a phone call to go into work and I went into work and we started doing updates at about 1 o'clock in the morning and just kept going. And I worked that day till 5pm and I went home exhausted like everybody else. I watched what was on the TV. The interesting thing is it wasn't that day that was the hardest. It was the following day because the following day as I arrived at work, a fax popped out of the old fax machine <laughs> which said that Ansett Airlines had collapsed and there would be no Ansett flights. So we had a major, major domestic story with a major international story. That was definitely the biggest day. I do laugh, though, Ralph, when I look back – the very first story I wrote in radio as a cadet at 2WS in 1982, 
the lead of the story was there's renewed hope this morning of peace in the Middle East. <laughs> and we crossed to a correspondent in Jerusalem who did a story for us. And I often look back on that, you know, 33 years ago and go, you know what, there really wasn't renewed hope then and there really is not now. Might be another 333 years be. before we get that renewed hope, I think. Be. But, um, yeah, it must be at times, um, I guess, harrowing to look back. I mean, I remember just a, a few years ago you had to deliver um, a great tribute to your great mate, Greg Hendricks. Um, how was that for you to put together? It was you know, in one way it was easy because he'd made such a, a benchmark about reporting uh, for Radio News. So I, I'd, I'd actually kept a wealth of material as I would do training at the film, television and radio school and other courses. I would sometimes use Greg's examples. Um, but in another way, it was, it was extremely sad. It was almost there was an unreal feeling of I can't believe I'm delivering an on-air obituary to one of my closest mates and, and certainly someone that that uh, I admired and the way that Greg could actually take complex information and explain it on the air so a listener who couldn't read a script, couldn't see what was going on, understood it. It was quite amazing and uh, he was a standout, but he was one of the people that taught me as well how to communicate and, and to stand live on a scene, sometimes with not the time to write any notes, and have someone cross to you and say, describe what's going on. And he had that simple ability to look with his eyes and communicate with his mouth, and the listener had the picture. They knew what was going on because of the language he chose, the brevity that he is with with uh, words. Uh, he was brilliant. So he was, he was one of the standouts, I thought, as a reporter. Have you ever got close to losing it on air over a particular story? Because some of the ones that we hear about, you don't actually know the people involved, but you kind of feel for them, particularly now I know as a parent, I kind of look at child sex abuse stories as really sad or there might be, you know, a missing child or, or something like that where I, I kind of, if I have to deliver that news, you really have to steal yourself before you actually uh, say something. I haven't, I haven't in the studio presenting news bulletins because you are one step removed I did find it hard as a reporter. I did find it hard going to the coroner's court at Westmead. I found it hard. I remember going to uh, a, a triple murder at Glenfield in Sydney Southwest, and these were three teachers at a a special school for children with disabilities, and they would stay overnight. They were effectively a mix between teachers and nurses, and those three were murdered in one of the classrooms. and And in those days, you actually got closer to a crime scene than you would ever get today and I found that quite distressing and hard to then actually go and put those reports together from on scene but I found reading news bulletins because you're in a radio station you're one step removed I think it's it's harder for the reporters in the field probably than it is for the news readers in the studio. One of the great on-air relationships that you had was with Jones and Amanda with that breakfast show they brought you in as part of the team, I guess, and, and and welcomed you in that way that not all shows have that, you know, banter between uh, newsreader and um, show, but you managed to pull that off. They're just great people, aren't they? I mean, at the end of the day. Just, well, some of the most talented I've worked with. Certainly Amanda is uh, probably the, the most talented person I've worked with in 33 years of radio. 
I love the way that she would come to work prepared. She was ready to go. She came in early. She was there. The prep was done the night before. Um, she was affable. And the other thing I liked about Amanda was that there was no difference on air to off air. She was exactly the same person. And people underestimate Jonesy. They think, you know, Amanda's got all this talent and she's amazing and Jonesy's on the carpet ride going with her. That's not true. He's actually a very smart operator and often he lets the persona of the Harley Davidson and all oh, those the things. Knockabout bloke. The knockabout bloke. Yeah. <clears throat> and it works to his advantage because it's a lovely, you know, yin and yang with, with Amanda. But the two of them together, it was just a pleasure to work on that breakfast show. I felt always it was a privilege to be invited in to be part of that show greater than just being there for the news bullet. And every day I couldn't believe the opportunity that you were given to be part of that. And the interesting thing, isn't it, that it's now four years since I worked on that breakfast show. Whenever I see them, it's like nothing's changed and we resume conversations where we're at. It was, I think it's just a measure of how close the relationship was, that even when time passes, when I don't see them a lot now working at a different network, uh, nothing's changed. Now, all of that came to an end, unfortunately, due to your ill health. How are you travelling now? Good. Four years on, I'm I'm great. Uh, it was quite a shock f- for me at the age of 50 to undergo open-heart surgery. Thought I'd never be there. Um, I really didn't have any symptoms. There was nothing that said to me, gee, you're ill. I had a very good GP that picked up some problems with my heart valve. Suddenly, I had six months off work and, uh, you know, it was it was – an end to that period at WS, which I didn't expect. But I always look at the upside. I had 14 years of reading breakfast on that great radio station. That was the radio station I started in, you know, and I had six years there in the 80s as well. So 20 years of my career, I'd worked at that one station. So despite the circumstances of me leaving there, and, you know, they weren't entirely ideal, I I have absolutely no bitterness or bad feelings. I walked out thinking, gee, I've, I've been able to work there for 20 years and 14 years for the last slab of that. Now, we'll wrap it up in a minute, but I just want to, because you're such a well-respected uh, person in the radio industry when it comes to news and you've seen a lot of people come through underneath your, um, I guess, tutelage, what advice would you have for anybody looking to break into the radio industry or radio news industry now uh, given the fact that it's it's probably getting smaller by the day. It's contracting all the time, and I think we seem to look online and see another job going from somewhere in a, in a newsroom. There's more networking going on. Look, it is tough, but I always say, uh, particularly to students, say it afters or some of the, the colleges, that uh, if you really want to do it, don't give up because there are opportunities. But to get those opportunities, you've got to be good. So how do you be good? And I always say to them, practice your writing, practice your reading. In fact, the the example I always give them is it's very easy to grab a newspaper or something online every day, write yourself three stories every day, no longer than three paragraphs, three three three-part stories, write them. By by the end of the week, you've, you've got 15 stories there. You can then put a mock bulletin together and read it and read it over and over again, practice it so that you're really good at it. Someday or other, you're going to walk into a radio station and they're going to say, look, actually, we have got a position open. I wonder, could you pop down there, knock us out a few stories and come around to the studio and we'll get you to read a bulletin. If it's the first time you've done it or you haven't done it for ages, you won't be that good. But if you've done it every day and you're writing three stories every day and you practice the reading of those and you're putting your little mock bulletins together, you'll be doing it like you do it every week. 
and you'll go in, you'll read confidently, you'll sound good, you'll write well, and you'll demonstrate to that employer, we should have this person in the place. So I I can see it's really tough at the moment. It is a contracting industry, but if that's where your love is, don't give it up. Glenn Daniel, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Ralph. There he is, Glenn Daniel from Smooth FM, and what an absolute joy it is to speak to him. I don't mind admitting he's been a great mentor to me, not only in radio, but also in life. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Glenn, please send him a tweet at Glenn D. Daniel. I'm sure he'd be really appreciative to receive that. That's Glenn with two N's. We've also got a Twitter account here, which is at MediaMatesAU. Then there's the Facebook page. So if you get along and like that, that'd be really great. But more importantly, if you could head to iTunes and subscribe, we've got some more great guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. So you don't want to miss them. If you could leave a rating or review, uh, that would also help people find out about the show. So uh, if you can get along and do that, that'd be fantastic. I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.